Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, um, Scott, for that wonderful, wonderful hymn. You know, we have a statement in our society in which we say, having come to Jesus moments. And um, I, one of the reasons why I love Sundays is because uh, every Sunday is a come to Jesus moment, right? Where we come before our Lord and we worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, we'll continue our series today um, in our Life Together series from 1 John chapter 3. As we look at love as a means of assurance, love as a means of assurance. You know, I was thinking about it the other day, how we've been knocked off our axis as a people. In which case, uh, we've been, um, I understand how I could have said that wrong, but, um, but I, I think I said it correctly. Uh, and, and it is the case that, that we've, we're a little discombobulated. And, and in the midst of being knocked about and, and just confused and maybe feeling some of that um, difficulty that comes with, with living in a sinful world, um, we get a, a bit of, uh, not just disoriented, but there's a sense in which we start to question things in a way that we've never questioned them before. And our, our assurance in terms of who we are before Christ, about what we believe, it's just been amazing to me how we are in a space right now where, where just basic things about who God is and what God has done because of this COVID-19 crisis for many of us has left us questioning has left us with this lack of assurance, even in our own mental faculties and our ability uh, to make wise decisions, or are we doing the right thing, or uh, all of that stuff. You, you guys know what I'm talking about. And so, as I was reading this passage, it dawned on me how John is so intent on providing a level of assurance that's grounded in the love of God, that's grounded in God's word. And so what I want to do this morning is just walk us through this passage where we see that, where you can have this assurance based on the love of Christ, based on what Christ has done for us. We can be assured that, yes, we will make mistakes and we will sin, but yet God is pleased with us. We're his children and we don't have to have it all figured out. And you know what? We don't have to be reminded of uh, or have everything nailed down perfectly. That doesn't matter. What matters is that we are in him and he's working his purposes out in us. And I hope that comes through today um, in, in the message as, as we go forward. Um, in your bulletin, you might see where we're supposed to read from 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, down to verse 24. But you know what? We're actually going to include verse number 10. I'm going rogue here, right? We're going to include verse number 10, and then we're going to read still down to verse number 24. And I want you to get the richness of what uh, John is saying here. So, uh, pay close attention. This is God's holy and inspired word of God for you, for all of us as children. So I call you to pay close attention to it. Here's what the word of God says. <clears throat> By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We talked about that in Sunday school. What a glorious reality. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and we know, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what, is, what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by, by the spirit whom he has given us. All flesh is grass and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, Indeed, this is your word, and the people that are listening, they're your people. There might be one that does not know you as Lord and personal Savior. I pray that the message, your message of the cross of grace and forgiveness and healing may lodge deep in their heart, and they might turn. They might turn from their um, self-desire to be God and give that over to you. You're far better at it than they will ever be. And Lord, I do pray for us, your people. We need you desperately every moment and every hour. Help us to be reminded of who we are and the assurance that we have in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. There was a, a lady in um, the church that I was at. And um, she, she had this saying, and it was a refrain, and I, and I caught on to it after a while. She would say, Dennis, I don't need insurance. I have assurance. And uh, it was one of those clever turn of phrases that I just loved um, her uh, saying. And, and what was interesting to me is that she said it not in some weird sort of way to discount the insurance industry. Um, not, not at all. Her whole point was that she was so assured of God's love and the plans that God has for her and God's uh, care towards her that her hope wasn't in insurance. Her hope was in the assurance that God gives her, that the Father gives her because of his love. And the same is true here in this passage, that John is intent on us having assurance, because assurance is important. We need assurance, because without assurance, we cannot live and do the things that God has called us to do. It takes gospel confidence. It takes a reliance on the Spirit and a confidence that the Spirit will use us for us to attempt to do anything for the Lord. And so what I want to do is I want to look and see how it is that we have this assurance, how you and I can walk in this gospel confidence in knowing that, yes, 
We have insurance, and it's good to have insurance, but we also need assurance. We need the consistent and persistent insurance of our Lord if we are to do what is pleasing in His sight. And there are three things from this passage I want to show you. First of all, we need to be assured and we need to know who we are. Who are you? You need to be reminded daily, every day, that you are a child of Christ. You are a child of God. And I want to remind you of that. And I want to show you why that's so important for us. Secondly, I want, to, I want you to be assured in knowing what you are called to do. Many of us have this lack of assurance because we're just, we just don't know what we're called to do. We have this anxiety about what should I be doing for the Lord? Am I pleasing him by doing the things that I'm doing now? Well, I want to show you from this passage how you can know and have that assurance that you are pleasing the Lord. And the third thing I want to show you is that I want you to have this assurance by knowing how you should do what God has called you to do. So it's one thing to know it, but it's a completely different thing to know how to go about it. And this passage talks about that. So let's just dive in. First thing I want to show you is I want to show you how by knowing who you are, we have this assurance before God. Notice with me in verse number 10. John says this of chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, when you first read this text, um, I could get a sense how some of us might say, wow, this is incredibly unloving by John because he's flat out calling people children of the devil. That there are some people from a spiritual standpoint that they are children of the devil. This seems incredibly unloving. Well, let me pause uh, for a moment. We have a lot of unhealthy ways of communicating the gospel in our society today. There are people who preach a gospel of condemnation. They preach a gospel in a manner that's completely unloving. And instead of preaching good news, they preach awful news. And that's all people get. And that can be discouraging. Even for me as a Christian, when I hear sometimes how people describe Christ and they describe God, it's a God I don't recognize because it's a God of condemnation. It's a God of hate. It's a God that just wants to see uh, the sinner destroyed. But this is not what John is saying. This is not what John is saying at all. John is giving us a view of reality that's really stark, and it's this. John isn't saying so much that there are good and bad people in the world. That's not John's point here. John's not concerned about the condition of the children. What John is saying here that's so powerful is that it doesn't matter who the children are, but it matters who the father is. That's the issue. We know, in fact, I know just from having children, that our children are going to sin. We sin. The children are sinners. But what matters is the father. How does the father respond to that sinfulness? Does he encourage that sinfulness? Or does he restrain that evil? This came home to me um, several years ago as I was reading a biography of Jonathan Edwards. And uh, if you look at the biography of Jonathan Edwards, and especially the lineage of Jonathan Edwards, something just strikes you. And it's pretty impressive. In Jonathan Edwards' lineage, he has 13 college presidents. So these are the children that Jonathan Edwards had. He had 11 of them and their progeny and down the line. Out of that are, are 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 60 doctors, Numerous lawyers, judges, state senators, 
congressmen, and you could just go down the line. His history is littered with people who have loved the Lord and have served their community faithfully. Now contrast that with someone else uh, who lived round about the same time as Jonathan Edwards. And this young man's name was Max Jukes. And Max Jukes tells a different story. In fact, there was one sociologist that looked into Max Jukes' line and found out, and here's, here, are the, here are the records, I pulled this right online, because I couldn't believe this, and I, and I kept it and I wrote it because it was just absolutely incredible. In Max Jukes' line, he had 310 people that they could identify roughly that died in abject poverty. Max Jukes uh, had and produced over 150 criminals in his line, seven murderers, countless drugs, uh, drunks, and prostitutes. Now you look at these two men, and you look at the history of their children, and you begin to realize that there's something more there than just bad luck versus good luck, or good providence versus bad providence. What you see there is who the father is, and what they modeled in the home mattered. And this is what John is saying here, that who your spiritual father is matters. If your spiritual father is the devil, well, look at verse number 11 through 15. Because Cain is a child spiritually of the devil. And if you, could, you could go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, and it's plain as day there between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and how that goes, that runs a line all the way through Scripture. And God is saying, listen, when, when a child is born, they're either going to be a seed of the devil or they're going to be a seed of the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And, and look at what happens to the seed of the devil. Look at, uh, if your spiritual father is the devil, look at all that the Bible says happens. Notice Cain. It says that Cain was an, of the evil one, that he murdered his brother, that he hated his brother, that he abides in death. I mean, you can go down and down the line. And so what is Scripture, call, what is scripture showing us? Well, Scripture is showing us that if your father, if your spiritual father is the devil, all you have to look forward to is death. All that you have to look forward to is a life of misery. And John is saying that's, that is the case. And why is that the case? Well, that is the case because of who we allow to influence us. I read uh, a few years back that five years from now, who you are will largely depend on what books you read and the people you keep company with. And I've found that to be true even in my life. That the people that influence me, and fathers, you're a huge influence in your home. Mothers, you are as well. How we influence our children depends on how they turn out. Now, that's not a universal, and I don't mean to put that on some, uh, some of you. I know some of you have children that may be wayward, and that, that has nothing to do with your parenting. That's, that's not the point of this text, actually. The point of this text is that spiritually, if you are not born in Christ, if you're not born again, you will not have God as your spiritual father. And that produces all sorts of sin and wickedness in our lives. And that's the illustration being used here. Cain is, is an indication or a metaphor for the world. That the world without God will be murderers. That the world without God will be filled with hate. They'll be filled with death. And there'll be a mark of death on them. And this mark of death travels all the way through their life, as in the case with Jukes. But the mark of life, the life, the abundant life that comes with being a child of Christ is evident, and it was evident in Jonathan Edwards and his family. And beloved, it's evident in you and I, 
that when we are children of God, we show forth the grace and the mercy and the power of God, and it's evident to all. I remember talking to Matt Monahan recently, and he told me this beautiful story of how uh, his sister uh, one day came over and saw his kids and had seen his kids for a long period of time. And she recognized by their behavior and the way they acted that there was something different about them. And that difference eventually led to her recognizing that God was at work. And beloved, so it is with you and I. When, as children of God, as we wake up and we are reminded of who we are and we live consistently with that, the world sees that and the world pays attention to that. And in that, we find an assurance in knowing that we are doing what God has called us to do. And unlike Cain, we don't bear the mark of death. Our lives are marked by abundant life and fruitful life in Christ. And so, beloved, where does your assurance lie? It lies in the fact that you are a child of Christ and that you bear the marks of righteousness. And it's those marks of righteousness that we get up and we see God working in and through us that brings life, not just to us, but all of those that are around us. Notice the second thing. How do we, how do we get this assurance? By knowing what you are called to do. In other words, simply by emulating Christ. Notice verse 16 through 18 in our passage. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not, not, let us not love in, in, talk, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How, how is it that we can receive assurance? By knowing what you are called to do. And the scripture is clear what we're called to do. We're called to be like Christ. Now, there are two ways that John says we do this. There are two ways. First of all, let's look at what uh, that love that we're supposed to emulate, what it's patterned after. In verse number 16, it says it's patterned after the cross. The cross, this laying down our lives for one another. You know what amazes me about Scripture? If you read, if you read Scripture, any time the writers of the New Testament talk, and the same thing is in the Old Testament, but more explicitly in the Old Testament, they always bring everything back to Christ and the cross. You know, Paul wanted to talk about tithing. Well, point to the cross. If Paul wanted to talk about, or one of the biblical writers wanted to talk about being of one mind, look to the cross. If they want to talk about being tired, look to the cross. If they want to talk about marriage, look to the cross. You get the point. Everything is just focusing on the cross. We learned about this in Sunday school. This pattern of laying down your life is patterned after the cross because it's in the cross we see the full measure of love toward us, your people. Now you might say, well, why the cross? Why is this the case? Because the cross is the grand unifying theory of the Christian religion. It's in the cross we glory, as the songs say. In the cross, be my glory ever. Why? Because in the cross, we see the full expression of God's love for his people. And notice how that expression is borne out. By laying down our lives for others. That's the essence of the cross, laying down our lives. We read this in uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Christ laid aside his deity for us. You know, I... Um, my wife would probably blush for me saying this, but, but I think this is true. You know, when I think about my wife, my, my wife is an incredible, incredible woman. 
Um, she has so many good gifts that I think can work in, in almost anywhere else. And it's always, it, it amazed me from the moment we were married how my life, how my wife laid aside, laid aside her right and her privilege to work necessarily outside of the home or, or lay aside her rights and privileges in terms of the gifts that God has given her. But she has done it for the sake of our family. I'll never forget when I made the decision to go to seminary, uh, I said, honey, you know, I think the Lord is calling me to seminary. And yes, she had some concerns, but ultimately she looked at me and she said, she said, honey, I'll follow you. If you think this is what God has given you, I'll follow you. And I think about all the times I've come to her with my wild and crazy ideas, and she just looks at me and she says, okay, we'll figure out a way to make this happen how she consistently lays aside her rights and her privileges. And, and your wives might do the same, or your husbands might do the same, and you see this. But this is the essence of love. Not insisting upon your own way, not taking upon yourself the privileges that you have, but how you consistently lay aside your rights and your privileges for the sake of others. This is what Jesus did for us. But notice the Bible says it's not just something we should look at and marvel at. Like, wow, isn't that cool? Jesus died for us. Isn't that awesome? John doesn't leave it there. Notice what John says. We need to take it a step further. He says that we ought to do it. There's an oughtness to that reality. Yes, we're called to lay down our lives for others. Uh, at least we see it in Jesus. But the Bible says that we ought to do it in the same way. You're like, whoa, really? Yes, really. The Bible calls us to have that same relentless, passionate love toward other people. And if it seems impossible, of course it is. That's why he's given you the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do it. We are called to lay down our lives on behalf of others. But it actually doesn't stop there. There's one other aspect of this. And this dawned on me when I was reading Jesus' uh, Jesus' work when he fed the 5,000. You know, everyone uh, reads the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and, and, and how Jesus was kind and he fed all of them. But, but nobody reads the passage right after that. Because the passage right after that talks about the next day. And they come to Jesus, and they, they want more food. That's the only reason why they came to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, okay, I'm willing to give you more food, but I'm willing to give you, I want to give you much more than that. I want to actually give you a part of my family, the family of God. Several, uh, several years ago now, I was in my study. I would not too long become a pastor, and I got a call from a woman, and the woman said, Hey, I, I'm, I'm in desperate need of help. I need money. And I said, okay, fine. We'll, I'll gladly help you. I said, do you have any family in the area? I just want to find out. And she said, no, I have no family. There's no one around. There's no one that I can, I, can go, uh, I can go to. And I thought to myself, you know, if I give this woman $50, $100, $150, that would be great. I would take care of her need. But what this woman really needs is a support group. She needs a family. She needs someone to be there for her and take care of her. And so I said, ma'am, I'll be happy to give you some resources, but I would love for you to come to our church because I think you need uh, help beyond just the money. You need a support group that will be there for you and take care of you and your family. And you know, it, for whatever reason, she just said, no, I just want the money. And I thought to myself, why do you just want the money? 
the money is just, just this thing. You're like, yes, it'll get you this week or it might get you a few days. But what you really need is a family. You really need to be a part of a body that can take care of you and to love you even beyond the money that you can get. And beloved, hear me today. This is what we should be offering people. I love that we have a benevolence uh, fund. I'm blown away by the generosity of this church. In fact, uh, Giving Tuesday was phenomenal for this church, the way you all pour out yourself for others and how you do it every day. Just recently, uh, yesterday, somebody, uh, we had a group come by our home and sing hymns to us, and I know they were going around to different places. Praise God for what CVBC is doing. Our, our church, the size of our church, are doing big things for the kingdom. Keep it up. But John is saying we need to go a step further. And we need to make sure that we're not just offering people money. We're offering them a family to be a part of our family. Because it's within the covenant family, the full expression, the full what it means to fully help them is realized. It's only within the context of a family that we can truly be laying down our lives on behalf of others. And it's only within the context of a family that we can truly do verse number 17. Notice what John says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You know, it's very difficult to close your heart against the people who, are in, who you see every Sunday. It's very difficult to close your heart against the people who are in your home. That's the beauty of a church. That's what separates us from, from a charity. You know, a charity, they do excellent work and they provide for people. But you know what? The church is designed to offer much more than money and resources. We are designed to offer people a family. That's why John says, your brother, your brother, the ones who are part of your family. Of course, those outside of your family as well. But how much more? How much more are those inside your family? And then notice John says, listen. For those that are in your family, we don't just love in word and talk. We don't just tell them, you know what, brother, I'll pray for you. No, we don't just tell them, oh, you know what, brother, I'll think about that. John says, forget all of that. Don't just talk about it. If they are a part of your family, you provide for them. If it's within your means, you absolutely do it. And it's through doing it, we gain assurance. And here's the crazy thing. I, I read a book once, and they talked about how giving always begets more giving. That when you and I give as a people, and we give liberally and generally, it just begets more and more and more giving. This is the principle that John is saying here. That our assurance comes because we practice this radical generosity, generosity of our time, gener generosity of our resources over and over again. That is what builds our confidence and trust in Christ. Now notice the last thing. Notice how our assurance in Christ comes by knowing how we should do what God has called us to do. Now, I point you to verse number 19 and verse number 20. John says this, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and we know everything. Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now let's pause there for a moment. How should we exercise our duties before God? How should we live as children of God? How should we practice this radical uh, level of laying down our lives on behalf of others? By gospel confidence. We've talked about this, but this is a theme that John talks about over and over and over again in the gospel. 
Because he wants us to have that gospel confidence. Now, what, what threatens that gospel confidence? What causes us to doubt ourselves? John tells us here in verse number 19, or, uh, verse number 19 and 20, that we need to constantly be reassuring our hearts. Why? Because our hearts condemn us. Condemn us. You know, whether it's me, your pastor, or whether it's a leader in this church, or whether it's just someone um, that faithfully attends, at some point in our lives, our hearts will condemn us. At some point during uh, this pandemic, our hearts condemn us. And what do you mean, you say, Dennis, what does it mean for our heart to condemn us? It's the lies that our hearts uh, often tell us, that we're not good enough, that we're not in possession of all the facts. The lies that the, our heart tells us in, in terms of making us sad, in, in manifesting our insecurities, in feeling useless and helpless, and even legitimate reasons like past sins, our hearts constantly and consistently condemn us because we understand our nature and the devil capitalizes on this, brothers and sisters. But the word of God tells us that when you are tempted in those moments and your heart condemns you to be sad or to be frustrated or to be angry, that God is greater than our hearts. Why? Because greater is he that in it, that's in us than he that is in the world. And it's that gospel confidence that allows us to have assurance that when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. And so often we listen to our heart's condemnation instead of listening to God's uh, affirmation where he says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Because it is through the Spirit we have confidence before God and our hearts are reassured and we can walk in the assurance of Christ. That is plain as day in terms of what John is saying. And not only that, when we have this confidence, we can go before him and saying, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, let me pause and say, this is not a blank check. We don't come before God and say, well, the scripture says that whatever we ask, you can give to us. There's a little caveat. And here's the caveat. God will give you the desires of your heart, right? That he will implant the things in you that you should ask, so you're asking in accordance with what he wants. God will never validate your sin. He will never answer sinful prayers by you, if you or you ask for something amiss. He will never bless you with the things that you're not supposed to have. Instead, the Holy Spirit works in you to be in tune with the heart and the mind of God. And so God then implants within you those desires, and as you ask them, the Bible says he answers them, and therefore you have that gospel assurance. You have that confidence before, before the Lord. And it's that confidence that matters. But the key to that confidence, John says, is that you and I stay connected to our God because it's before God. Notice verse number 21. He says, we have confidence before God. In other words, before the face of God, in the presence of God. I've noticed this, uh, I've noticed this reality when, whenever we go somewhere, I always, I always try to stand so my children see me all the time. And one of the reasons why I do that is because I want to be able to see them all the time. But I notice that when they're able to see me, they have confidence. You know, they run around, they have fun. 
But the moment they don't see me, if I, if I move out of their frame of reference, there's a panic that sets in, like, whoa, I'm in an unfamiliar place. I don't know where I am. Where's daddy? And they come looking for me. But once they see me again or once they see their mom, it's back at it. They're having fun because my presence is a reassuring factor in their life. And it provides for them the assurance they need to flourish. And the same thing is true for us, God's people. When we see the face of God, when we are in the presence of God, when we know that our God is near, we have this assurance and our hearts are assured that even when our hearts try to condemn us, God, by his presence, reassures us that you are loved and that, you, that he is there and that he's watching over you and providing that which you need to bring you gospel confidence. Let us as a people rest in that, that, our, that we are God's, we are his, and he cares for us deeply and we, our hearts are assured by it. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, it is true that we desperately need assurance. We are your people are always going to and fro, being knocked around. And yet, Lord, it's by your presence. It's by the fact that we are yours. We are your seed, and you provide that spiritually what we need that our hearts are reassured and comforted in knowing that you are there. Oh, Lord, I pray that for everyone under the sound of my voice. I pray that for those that have listened, that they walk away in knowing and being assured that they are in Christ. They don't have to please anyone in this world. They don't have to perform. They could just rest in that knowledge and be reassured of that knowledge and have the assurance that comes with that. Oh, Lord, bless us now, your people. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Help us now to walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.